Hello and welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I find the monarchy fascinating, but I am most definitely not a monarchist. I also touch on political movements, gender politics, and much more. And I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today. The good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked into bed to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and C-grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Hey everyone, long time no here. <laughs> okay, um, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and today I'm going to be giving a book review on a book called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. The book is written by Matthew Gabriel and David M. Perry. Matthew is a medieval studies professor at Virginia Tech, and David is a medieval historian and senior academic advisor at the University of Minnesota. The book came out uh, fairly recently, I want to say. Um, maybe, oh God, I think it came out in either October or November of 2021. Um, so I heard about it through a few of my favorite medieval uh, historian Twitter accounts. Uh, they had given it just wonderful reviews and one person was uh, clever enough and amazing enough, very helpful enough, I'm a very visual person, uh, to do a re Twitter review with a lot of memes, like really expressive memes, and screenshots of texts, like just of the book. In particular, there was a lot of texts that were throwing a lot of shade at white supremacy, which I was like, oh my god, I need, I need to get my hands on this book. I feel like so much of medieval history text uh, that we have, um, you know, people like autobiographies and accounts of the Middle Ages are just very uh, Eurocentric and very much shying away from the fact that uh, white supremacy has roots in medieval times. And uh, I feel like a lot of people kind of want to ignore that because they'll kind of chalk it up to well, it was normal to act that way back then. And it's like, mm, it wasn't normal then. It, it's not normal now. So when I'm seeing, a, you know, a text or, you know, text by uh, two white guys throwing shade at white supremacy, like I, of course, I'm immediately interested. And in, uh, my experience with researching the Middle Ages is uh, this place is, it is just an incredibly different time than what uh, the stereotypical norm, like, view of the Middle Ages is, if that makes sense. I just think we do the Middle Ages such a great disservice when we only focus on telling the stories of rich white guys doing rich white terrible things and uh, covering up with the fact that, oh, this is how it was back then. And I'm like, mm, 
So your culture was to destroy things? Um, what a thing to be proud of. Anyways, uh, long rant ended. Uh, I feel like there's just much more to the Middle Ages than what we are told. And I think this book captures that incredibly well. And I don't think I've done a book review on this platform before. Um, I do feel like uh, I have maybe mentioned books in passing that were my favorite, uh, but I don't think I've done like a, a legit book review. So, uh, you know, initially when I started this, I was like, it's not going to be too long. Um, but then I started uh, rereading the book again and remembering certain parts and thinking, oh my God, that's fascinating. Well, I have to tell them, I have to tell them this, that, 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 you know, my ADHD brain is just exploding with hyperfixations. So I hesitate to use the word spoiler, but, uh, I will be going more in depth with some chapters than others. And, uh, kind of, I, it's not spoilers because it's history and it did happen. So not a spoiler in the his like the fiction sense but um if you're like ah I really want to read the book before I listen to this uh podcast because I want to know the general flow of it then by all means uh skip this episode for now and come back to it later because I will be talking in depth about certain things and reading things from the text reading text from the book there you go Oh, also, I did listen to the audiobook version of this, which uh, I definitely have some thoughts on that. Uh, but let's go ahead and just get started. The Bright Ages set out to give the readers a new interpretation and vision of what the Middle Ages were. I think more often than not, when we use the term medieval, we are using it as an insult, like to imply that something or someone is filthy and that their way of thinking is like backwards. So like an example of this is um, <laughs> like when I desperately need to shower and it's been like a couple of days, I often say, oh my gosh, I need a bath. I got medieval scalp right now. Or to imply someone's way of thinking uh, usually is set on challenging misogynistic viewpoints and policies that uh, dictate control over someone else's body. Like how could you want to control a woman's body that's so medieval? And while I absolutely just disagree with those politics that would enforce controlling someone's body, um, that definitely do cause intentional harm, I think it's unfair to use the term medieval to describe that. Especially since it's so, like, fucking modern day, you know? Like, come on. The writers of this book throw shade at both the left and right for their misuse of the word medieval. Often it is something that is taken up by both political parties, both liberal and conservatives, and they use that term to put each other down. The authors describe how their own students are drawn to medieval studies by shows like Game of Thrones and Vikings, or through video games like, uh, uh, I think this is uh, one of the ones that they discussed, uh, is Assassin's Creed. I think Assassin's Creed uh, has... I. I'm bad with video games, but I think they deal with the mid the Middle Ages, in particular the Crusades. Um, I don't do video games unless it's Super Mario. Anyway, what the media fails to capture of the Middle Ages is the complexity and diversity of it all, as well as choosing to uplift white male voices as opposed to the countless others of that era. In my experience, as an avid watcher of period films, the stories told 
the stories are typically told, like fantasy stories are typically told through a male protagonist and women are objectified. In Game of Thrones, for example, while it is fantasy, the writer of that series was inspired by the Middle Ages. And uh, both the creators of the Game of Thrones series uh, include, uh, and when I say both, I mean like the HBO creators and uh, George R. R. Martin uh, series include like lots of rape scenes in their series. And they kind of claim that, oh, well, that's how it was back in the day. You know, it was a brutal time. And sure, people got raped all the time, but how is that different from today? Uh, we don't believe rape victims. We don't believe women or people when they have been sexually harmed. So how is that medieval thought? How is it that that was like something that was, oh yeah, it doesn't happen anymore when it still fucking happens? And if, anyways, if the only thing you can conjure from the Middle Ages is sexual violence, well... I feel like maybe don't make medieval things and don't use the Middle Ages as inspiration. Maybe I think you can find sexual violence anywhere you look in America. So have at it. So as stated earlier, the writers uh, of the Bright Ages, they mention white supremacy quite a bit and the creation of Western civilization uh, in this book or, you know, the West. Um, I mean, and how can they not? You know, this is... This is what got me intrigued by this book, and it can be tricky business trying to uh, find books of this time period that are not, um, how you say, like glorifying the period, um, as if it were like a warm, wholesome memory, and not only that, but like painting a picture of how like Anglo-white Europe was in the Middle Ages. It absolutely wasn't. I mean, let me allude back to... Uh, what I was just talking about, about media. So like films and series and such uh, that take place in the Middle Ages and they just have zero people of color. And then when a film is made with a person of color or, oh my God, of more than a few people of color, like racist, who they just have a field date with that. They're like, I can't believe that there's a black person in the Middle Ages because wasn't everybody like just mayonnaise sandwiches? And it's like, no, not at all and not ever. Europe was never ever a white utopia as so many would love to insist that it was. And I'll go into more detail about that. But right off the bat, the writers made it very clear that this will not be a book about white men doing white things. Later, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, imperialist European powers and their intellectuals often the forerunners of our scholars in medieval studies themselves, sought a history for their new world order to justify and explain why whiteness, a modern idea, albeit with medieval roots, justified their dominion over the world. They found the proto-nations of the Middle Ages useful as a past to point to for their modern origins, pointing to both medieval connections to Greece and Rome, and the independence and distinct traditions of medieval polities. These modern thinkers used the fiction of Europe and the invented concept of Western civilization as a thread to tie the modern world together. They looked outside themselves and saw barbarism. They looked into both the medieval and classical European past and imagined they found white faces, like theirs, looking back at them. They were wrong about all of this. 
I think it's really important to note that uh, these authors of the Bright Ages, they do a really great job of, or part of their process of decolonizing the Middle Ages is to include lots of voices from BIPOC people, so people of color and Black individuals, and as well as women as well. And they do uh, give a lot of shout out to women medieval historians as well. Uh, and so we're going to be hearing um, when you read this, you're going to be reading stories from like Northern Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And this book also just heavily emphasizes uh, the dependent connections that all these lands had with one another. It just completely binds them together for like this complete encompassing tale of the Middle Ages. Let me start by describing the cover of this book. So it's bright blue and has golden circles with white flowers, and it does have a little bit of orange too. At first I was like, oh my gosh, what a cute design. Not really believing it had any kind of further, deeper meaning to it, but it does. So the design was inspired by where the story of the Middle Ages begins. In the chapel of Empress Galla Placidia in Ravenna, Italy, built in the 5th century. The mausoleum within the chapter features a wonderful ceiling with an array of lapis blue glass. The method in which the mausoleum was constructed gave the ceiling a sort of kaleidoscope effect. The floor of the space is elevated to draw the viewer closer to the ceiling. Places of worship, both polytheistic and monotheistic of this time, relied on the manipulation of light and depictions of the sky to bring earth and heaven together in the gaze of the viewers. Galla Placidia was daughter of a Roman emperor and played a major role in Roman politics. Her first husband was Atulf, king of the Visigoths. It was believed by many that this union would set the tone of peace amongst rivals. I believe it was around this time that Rome was failing, I use quotes around failing, and I'll add more to that in a minute. So there was this real sense of urgency to accept change, but to not let go of the old ways of Rome. The Visigoths used to be terrorized by Romans, and there were accounts of uh, Romans denying Visigoths food, water, and shelter, and this leading to the Visigoths having to sell their children into Roman slavery in exchange for dog meat. Fast forward a couple hundred years later, Visigoths totally embraced Roman ways and wanted to be Roman. Back to Gala. So this union was supposed to garner power for both of them. They only produced one child who had died very young. The child was originally buried and buried in Hispania, modern day Spain, but was exhumed and believed to be buried within the mausoleum, supposedly. After her first husband was killed in the bathtub by an angry servant, Gallery married Constant I'm gonna try to say this Constantius the third and had children with him. Now, I believe it is at this point in history that Rome was separated into two empires, the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire. It's important to understand that Rome never actually had fallen. To quote the book, The Roman Empire evolved, but still, it endured both in practice and in the hearts and minds of the rulers of Western and Mediterranean Europe. We have to remember that Rome as an empire changed, but that it had always been changing. Change was part of the story from the very beginning. Its centers of power moved, its spheres of influence fragmented, coalesced, and fragmented again. 
The idea that Rome fell, on the other hand, relies upon a conception of homogeneity of historical status. The passage goes on to discuss that the initial proposal that Rome had indeed fallen had come from the 18th century writer Edward Gibbons, who idolized the F out of Rome. This was during the time the French Revolution was popping off, and the British Empire was growing and murdering more and more people than they ever dreamed of in the process. Gibbons argued that when Rome adapted to deal with the new realities of and shifting of European thought is when it ceased to exist. The glories of Rome were no longer a thing. So if you really think about it, there was this idea that ancient Rome was like this glorificous period of time where it was just strictly men in charge and there was no like intermixing of thought and culture, just Roman thoughts and Roman culture which is gross and totally inaccurate. It's interesting to me that the writers choose a woman's story to signify the changing of Rome and the dawn of the Dark Ages, aka the Bright Ages. Gala played an integral role in the shaping of the two empires and demonstrated her ability to negotiate complicated politics amongst a whole lot of powerful men. Gala died in Rome in her 60s and was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, Right before she died, she reburied her infant son, the one who had died in Spain, with her in the basilica. So I was a little confused because I thought she was, um, well, there's a little bit of confusion here. I'll get into it. The authors believe that the mausoleum in Ravenna was meant to be the tomb uh, of Gala and her infant son. They implied that this child Gala had lost uh, symbolized a unified peace amongst rivals and Throughout her political career, she never stopped mourning this loss. And something I really like about this book is that it never shies away from the constant unresolved grief people of this time had experienced. Yet what stands in remembrance of that grief is beauty. Therefore, I find their tribute to the mausoleum in the design of the book cover uh, to be endearing. It signifies grief and hope, two feelings that can transcend time. There's a lot of mention of this guy, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, in this book, and he was a whole asshole. Uh, he was just obsessed with just war and had such a boner for Rome. And to describe just war, I'm going to read from the book. Just war is an outward-facing idea of how Christians should react to other groups. Compel intare is inward within an intellectual community about how Christians should engage heterodox groups within. And so the critical issue becomes who gets to define who is inside and who is outside. To simplify that too, you could also just say, um, and this is how I interpret it, like just war is, um, it's violence that is okay because it's in the name of God. I forgot to also add, in addition to St. Augustine being, having like a big boner for, <laughs> for Rome, he did not believe that Christianity was what caused Rome to change, but believed that Rome was like the pinnacle of peak civilization. Anyway, I could really talk about Rome for a while, and this book definitely does. As someone who's not a fan of ancient Rome, this book provides a very clear, distinct idea of what the political and regional climate of Rome was like at this moment. Well, 
regional in the sense of the Mediterranean, of course. Uh, I think since most of us associate the fall of Rome with the dawn of the Dark Ages, this is a very good starting point. There is also the exploration of the Eastern Roman Empire, aka the Byzantine Empire, and some discussion about Justinian and his wife Theodora. I know a lot of history nerds who are like totally obsessed with Theodora and her position as a monarch. Spoiler alert, a lot of folks hated how in the Eastern Empire it was much simpler to go up the ladder as far as status goes. Like one could go from fairly humble means to being like head honcho and lots of folks, especially the rich folks, hated this. So these two, uh, Justinian and Theodora, they got a lot of beef for this, um, more so for their original position in life than their character or their actions. I'd say the first three chapters are dedicated to the evolution of Rome and the reshaping of Christianity throughout the continent. Someone who had reviewed this book had viewed the reshaping of the religion as a rebranding of sorts, a scheme to gain more support and followers. I'm definitely inclined to agree with that. This was definitely a power move and a way to shift from old thought into new. But it wasn't really that new. It was just rebranded. Um, back to my original comment of pagan ties to uh, Catholicism. The whiteification of Jesus began in ancient Rome. And everyone was like, yeah, man, of course Jesus looks like us. Like, we totally murdered him, but he was just one of us. To be clear, this book never mentioned Jesus as a person. It does not speak to his character or his ambitions or actions. And this was definitely a good call. Because um, one, Jesus was not alive in this era. And uh, I would never call Jesus a figure of the medieval world. The facade of Jesus, for sure, uh, but not the actual man. But the writers here focus more so on the movement of the religion and how monarchs used it to their advantage which is definitely a medieval vibe. Now I'm going to talk a bit about one of my favorite chapters, and that is chapter five, which is titled Sunlight on a Northern Field. And we are introduced to Britain. Real quick note here, uh, the titles of each chapter are beautifully creative and intriguing. The chapter opens with this apocryphal and very likely untrue story about white pagan Britons being sold into bondage throughout Italy. This was from a monastic uh, 8th century account, and it was written to connect Britain to Rome, and thus legitimize the presence of Christianity in England. Stories like this one have been romanticized over centuries, and even deployed as a founding myth for white supremacist ideas about the past. It is a story that sees a forgotten land reclaimed and yet always flourishing, colonized by Roman Christians and yet forever independent, inhabited by white Germanic polytheists, just waiting for the triumph of Christianity to pave the way to the British Empire. Yo, it's wild that white supremacists idolize colonization so much that they view their own colonization as being fucking romantic. Like, Jesus Christ, y'all. Uh, this was a constant story told throughout the medieval world and modern day and was like a way for the tellers to promote themselves and justify their subjugation of other peoples. This chapter touches on Roman Emperor Hadrian for like a minute, 
uh, just alluding to the fact that he was there around the second century. And it also kind of goes on to discuss uh, earliest archbishops uh, who came to the island in, my notes say the seventh century, but I think it was earlier than that. I think it was fifth or sixth. Fifth or sixth century uh, Britain, well, really, after the, quotes fall of Rome to uh, before the pre-kingdoms of England, it's like one of my favorite periods of the island's history. And I just love the idea of like a small monk-like communities just surrounded by vast green. And I super love the idea of, in uh, not England, uh, London being a forest and London just being like this forest with like a river that goes through it rather than the nasty trauma-filled metropolis it is now. Don't get me wrong. I love London and it's dirty gross ass, but um, I believe once upon a time it was probably just gorgeous. Like I just imagine England before Christianity and before huge cities was probably just really like, it looked like an Arthurian legend. Like it was just lush and vast and gorgeous. And um, so the chapter also states that Britain was actually never alone. Uh, so it was never a forgotten land waiting to be reclaimed by white Jesus. Like that was a total lie. Um, it was always a traveling stop. And there have been many, like so many objects from all over the world dating back to the Bronze Age that have been like found in just random ass English fields. They found jewelry from Sri Lanka and India, uh, Persian coins and weaponry from the Byzantine Empire were just like amongst the few things that have been like found in abundance. In fact, from the Bronze Age through the medieval period, uh, we're finding people uh, buried in British graves, or I should say English graves, whatever the fuck, um, buried in British graves who were born in Asia and Africa. And that number peaked, unsurprisingly, during the Roman period, but never fell to zero throughout the Middle Ages. Thus, this ruins the white dream of England being a land of just white people. It's never, ever, ever, ever been a land of just white people. The Venerable Bede, a 7th century Anglo monk, counted five languages spoken on the island and seems to have assumed that multilingualism was common. We are in a moment where scholars are radically reimagining early medieval Britain that is a complete opposite of the nationalistic lie told over and over. This is making way for a more honest story of the island. So this chapter really paints a picture of Britain before it was even called Britain, and I want to know more about that place. And, you know, we do have some things and so a little bit of a story of the island before it was called Britain, but we don't have a whole lot, and I really wish we did. The chapter then goes on to discuss the many kingdoms that began to pop up in 7th and 8th centuries, and I'm not going to go over them all because that will... <laughs> Trust me, that is a lot, and that's also something I'm kind of trying to learn myself. Uh, it's a lot of information, but basically, um, to paint a picture for you, it's like the kingdoms were like uh, 
separate in each different region. So there was like a Southwest Kingdom. There was one that was uh, where London currently is. Uh, there was like the Kingdom of Northumbria. There was a, like, I think Wessex was um, the one in London. And then there was a Winchester one. Honestly, I'm not going to get into it. It also discusses the occupation or the introduction of the Danes and thus like how Anglo-Saxons was kind of like became a thing. So very much like Last Kingdom vibes. If you haven't seen Last Kingdom, um, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I, I thought that show was a lot of fun. And typically I'm really suspicious of, you know, shows with Vikings. Um, and I'll get into why, but, uh, but yeah, I thought it was a pretty good show. So check that out if you are just as big of a nerd as me. The next chapter starts from an unlikely perspective, and that is of an elephant. The elephant made their way from beyond the Sahara to Europe, with their final destination being what is now Western Germany, at the court of the douche king Charlemagne. Charlemagne had sent for the elephant about four years prior. The elephant's name was Abul Abbas. If I remember correctly, it's been a minute since I read this book. The elephant was a gift from the fifth caliph of the Abbasid dynasty. Caliph comes from the word caliphate, which is an institution of public office governing a territory under Islamic rule. Thus, the caliph would be the one in charge. Oh, so the, the caliph's name uh, was Harun al-Rashid, and the name also translates to Aaron the Just. Not important, but also important. Uh, so just an FYI, so Harun was described as being very good looking. And it sounds like he was like, he sounds like a medieval Oscar Isaac. Uh, he had olive skin. He was tall, but slim and strongly built uh, with dark wavy hair. <laughs> Hello, dreamboat. I must start calling him Harun the Hat. Let me read you a passage about what the gift was meant to signify. What we do know is what it meant for this to happen, specifically under Charlemagne and Harun al-Rashid. What it meant for an elephant to move those thousands of miles at that time and between those places. And what it meant for visitors to Charlemagne's court to be confronted by the glinting ivory whiteness of an elephant's tusk. As the elephant thundered and his tusk came into sight, it reminded all its viewers of the East and, from the Frank's perspective, of a connection between equals between Christian Roman Emperor and an Islamic Persian Caliph. The chapter then goes on to discuss Charlemagne's family and his mission to become master of new Roman Empire. Blah, 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 blah. Like, I hate Charlemagne and every fucking person who, like, jizzes their pants over like white European history just loves him. And I'm like, stop, he sucked. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it's an interesting read. I guess if you want to read about Charlemagne, I do wish rather than hearing more about Charlemagne, we just would have heard more about, uh, Harun the Hot. Now let's talk about Vikings after our break. Vikings, 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 Vikings. Why do white supremacists love them so much? 
Oh my God, because I'm so like irritated. Anytime I want to read about Vikings or even entertain the idea of going to Scandinavia during a plague, I'm just painfully reminded of the existence of people who think they're like the master race. Like, shut the fuck up un and unpack your shit for the love of the planet. Like, please. Oof. And, you know, there are so many people who just, like, idolize them as being this, like, these, like, pillars of peak masculinity and, like, epic blondness. Like, please calm down. And the writers of this book definitely encourage these people to also calm down. To quote the book, Vikings loom large in the modern imagination, the subject of popular TV shows and video games, caricatured by far-right groups for their violence and supposed misogyny. But the Bright Ages are more complicated than that, and the Vikings are no exception. So the term Viking itself is a limiting one, something akin to pirate, and so not super applicable to all groups at all times, in its historical context. An example of this would be Byzantine, which has traveled far outside their original context over the centuries, um, but it's used for simplicity's sake. When we think about the Viking Age, we should expand our field of vision, and rather than focus on like Scandinavia, like I often do and like so many other people do, we gotta view Viking activity across continental Europe, Asia, and the islands of the North Atlantic, uh, North America, and Northern Africa. For argument's sake and for simplicity, I'm just going to refer to them as Vikings. The writers discuss how many of the stories that we have about Vikings are written in an array of languages, which are Greek, Latin, English, Arabic, and Slavonic, which these are just amongst the few that we have. While Vikings were indeed violent as fuck, they also participated in trans-regional trading networks and they built the best ships in the medieval world. One of my favorite images of Vikings that the writers introduced me to, um, they describe how Vikings, when they visited the Middle East, uh, you know, they would abandon their ships and they would travel instead via camels and they would pretend to be Christians to pay a less tax on trade goods because I guess polytheist paid more in taxes than uh, monotheist which is interesting I'm not too sure why but I really like that image of Vikings on camelback. In 920 the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad sent a diplomat with the Rus aka Vikings on their journey back north. The diplomat was named Abin Fadlan and there is a really terrible movie about him starring Antonio Banderas. And I think it was done in the 90s. Don't watch it. He needs a new movie. This guy definitely needs a new movie. And we don't know a whole lot about Abin Fadlan other than what he had written about the Russ, aka the Vikings. This is from the book. Ibn had conflicting reactions as he learned more about the Russ on his journey. On the one hand... He said he had never seen bodies more perfect than theirs. They were like palm trees. They are fair and ruddy and heavily armed. The women wore fine jewelry, perhaps brooches of some sort, and torques around their necks. Yet even as Abin Fadlan admired their beauty, he condemned them as the filthiest of God's creatures, like wandering asses, 
recoiling at their practice of washing in the morning with a single bowl, blowing their noses and spitting in the water before handing it back to a serving girl who would pass it to the next man. Ha ha! Peak masculinity. A little side note about that. So I don't recall what YouTube I was watching, but somebody had read uh, Ibn Fadlan's uh, account that I had just read to you, and they were like, so we have this account that the Vikings were dirty, but we also don't know whether to believe this is true because maybe he was just jealous. And I'm like, um, are you 12? The chapter goes on to describe a rape ritual that had been documented. And if it's all right with y'all, I'm going to skip that story. There is a quick shout out to Rollo, who was a Norwegian war chief living in Normandy, France. Before it was Normandy, it was the land of the Northmen, and Rollo's successors would become Dukes of Normandy and then Kings of England. So deviating from Vikings for a minute, stay with me in this conversation because uh, this is just a kind of a new thought of mine. Uh, so a conversation that I see discussed a lot is just how English are the British royal family. And at this point, I feel like the current family, uh, they are mostly German, uh, but they can trace some very early ancestry back to some of the oldest families in England. So like non-Anglo-Saxons. All that to say, I think it's pretty interesting how a majority of British royal family lineage is outside relations. Outside in a sense where it's like, I don't want to imply like they're not inbred because they're hella fucking inbred. Um, but outside relations in the sense where they are not of that country, if that makes sense. So they're like uh, comprised of like invader relations and not from the people of that land. It's just something to think about. Like what's super, super interesting to me is that the royal family, one of their ancestors is like a Viking war chief and they are descended from Vikings. Uh, so, and Vikings were definitely invading, uh, the Island of England and had been invading the Island of England for centuries, uh, before they themselves became Kings. So you, you feel me? Like it's a little odd. It's, it's odd and it's intentional and it's weird and I don't like it. So I'm going to kind of speed through the rest of this book because I feel like <laughs> I meant to make this a very short episode, but who am I getting? Like, I am not wired to write or talk about anything in short length. Like, that's not, it's not possible. So, uh, you know, once you get me started on these topics, it's just very hard for me to stop. So I'm gonna try to speed through some things. There's a chapter that opens up with a story of saints and how stories of saints were used to get the public to obey and for lesser classes to somewhat yield to middle classes. Like, big surprise there. Um, something I do think is cool about this book is that it incorporates a lot of medieval artifacts and art into the story. So in the saints chapter, the writers tell us a story about Saint Foy, or also called Saint Faith, and how there is a 9th century golden reliquary of the child. Yeah, she was a child saint. In, I think it's pronounced Conquet, France. 
In the previous chapter on Vikings, it ends with Vikings eventually embracing Christianity and describing a carved uh, standing stone showing the crucifixion of Jesus from modern-day Denmark. Um, Like, the carved stone is from modern-day Denmark. Um, And it's an interesting piece as it shows old-world Viking craftsmanship embracing the new, or should I say, imposed religion of the land. And I do really appreciate the incorporation of medieval art in its architecture, written word, tapestries, etc. Because art is a reflection of tone, mood, and expression of a person, place, and time. One of my favorite chapters is chapter 12, and it is titled, A Radiant White Hind with the Antlers of a Stag. This chapter opens with the story of Gwik. I can't say this name, story of Guigmar, an archer who shot what he thought was a white female deer, but was perplexed as the deer had male antlers. A gender fluid beast, yes, please. This story is about love, sex, and a magic boat. It is a 12th century story signifying Eros, a romantic love related to passion and sex. The writers make a point to tell the audience directly that medieval people had sex, liked it, and thought about it a lot, and perhaps wrote about it even more so, which many people want to believe the view, uh, many people want to view the Middle Ages as being sexually repressed, and in a lot of ways it was, but people still had all kinds of sex, not approved by the church, lots of queer sex too. During the 12th century, there is a bit of a renaissance in the sense of emerging romantic tales of love, sex, and desire. This could be in large part as this was a period of urbanization, of rapid economic and population growth, and a centralizing of monarchs leading to an increase in literary production. This chapter also has one of my favorite lines that I quoted earlier in this episode. There is more to the past than great white men doing great white things. Historian Joan Kelly famously asked, thinking about the 14th and 15th centuries, did women have Renaissance? She ultimately said no, because it mattered what criteria you were using to judge that supposed rebirth. If you actually paid attention to women, their lives notably worsened as we moved toward 1500. This was definitely the vibe I got when examining this era. I'm not a real big fan of courtly love, but there was a big sway in how women were praised, even in the false sense of how they were perceived further down the line. So like how they were talked about in the 12th century was not fantastic, but it definitely shifted a lot in the later centuries. So I do appreciate this rebranding of Renaissance as I feel like Uh, It focuses on the patriarchy striving towards a rebirth and leaving out anyone who is not them. Is it really a rebirth of society if you exclude anyone who isn't a great white man doing great white things? No, it's not a good rebirth of society at all. It's like when people try to talk about the glories of America and I'm like, "Mm, yeah, but America was only good for white men. So I don't, I don't know what you want from me. The old French story of Guimar, I do not know how to say the name, Guigmar or Guimar, I think it's Guimar, is written by Marie de France, who authored three other works, 
In this period, it was common for writers to end their epic poems or romances with anonymous rather than sign their name. Don't ask me why, uh, because I just don't have a good answer for you. But rather than sign anonymously, she simply signed her work, Marie. Marie wrote the story of Lanval, which Lanval is a knight in King Arthur's court who was overlooked by the king, wooed by a fairy lady, who gives him all manner of gifts and subsequently refuses the advances of Queen Guinevere, who at one point refers to him as a queer slur, since he won't sleep with her. Which reminds me of Le Roman de Silence, where the queen accuses Silence of being queer because he will not sleep with her. This was around the time where Arthuriana was really just popping off all over Europe, and monarchs began to claim they were descended from Arthur, which, uh, for a big chunk of my life, I thought was true, so the lies they told were ones that were told over the centuries. The chapter spirals out into a brief retelling of Eleanor of Aquitaine's life, including how she was blamed for the fall of the Second Crusade. So don't quote me on this, but Eleanor was blamed for the fall of the Second Crusade because I thought it was like a really bad idea that she went along with her husband at the time to the crusade and that she was ultimately just bad luck and like scheming. And one of the things they did um, after the fall of the Second Crusade was they compared her to uh, Queen Guinevere in uh, the story of Lanval and how she was just manipulative, just like the queen herself, which is baloney. Marie de France did defend uh, Eleanor by claiming one had nothing to do with the other, but you know, dudes are going to find creative ways to blame women for their own shortcomings, like tale as old as time. Moving forward, there's a brief shout out in this chapter to Hildegard von Bingen, who, if you don't know her, please do yourself a favor and check her out as soon as possible. She has some songs available via Spotify that she wrote. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but they give off like super gay vibes. Just just give it a listen. Anyways, real cool woman who was a writer, composer, mystic, medical writer, and practitioner. There's not a whole lot we know about Hildegard's early life, except... The book mentions in 1106, she was apparently immured, literally walled into a cell, with a local hermit named Yutta when she was only eight years old. I could not find any more on this story, so if anyone knows any more, please let me know because it sounds really fucking weird. Hildegard claimed she had experienced visions from God since she was about the age of five. These moments of supposed revelation became the basis for most of her work. This had attracted the attention of the papacy, and they made sure to always keep an eye on her. Hildegard approached the topic of theology connected to reform and the direction of the church. The ability to interpret the divine plan of God was an, actively, or was an activity generally reserved for men. Hildegard, without a doubt, an incredibly talented and smart woman, always downplayed her own intelligence in letters to men of authority. I believe as a woman, especially a 12th century one raised within the church, she was brought up to always remain humble and small. Uh, this was likely also as a way to uh, keep her safe. It was basically a 12th century masking. Hildegard faced a brief excommunication after she was allowed, uh, or 
after she allowed an excommunicated man to be buried on hallowed ground within her community, saying that he had reconciled with the church prior to his death. The excommunication was only lifted when she humbly submitted to the archbishop's authority. The authors of this book tied the stories of Hildegard and Eleanor together to draw attention to the fact that both women held a lot of power in their own rights, but were still violently reminded that there were limits to that power. And that leads us to the end of the 12th century, which if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you'll know that the end of this century was met with religious control and like violent order. So lots of fire and lots of blood. The next chapter discusses the Cathars and their eventual slaughter. The Cathars, so, okay, so the Cathars for a very long time, I always thought the Cathars were like a separate religious order, basically like a more metaphysical branch of Christianity. But in actuality, there was no Cathar religion. There was, however, a widespread and deep-seated animosity towards priests, also known as anti-clericalism, that derived in part from a skepticism about the usefulness of the priesthood generally, as well as a desire for a purer lifestyle that rejected worldly wealth, which, I mean, that's valid. In my opinion, I'm not, like, well, I'm not religious, but what these next chapters point out is just how interwoven church and monarchy is and how much like worldly wealth they both had so like they were basically just like oh yeah y'all should be humble and happy that you're poor meanwhile we're just gonna go like rub gold coins on our dick i don't have many nice things to say about religion of the middle ages or really religion as of now um so if that offended you well I mean, you made it this far, babe. Might as well finish. Anyway, so without getting too much into it, for time's sake and for my sanity's sake, the University of Paris was like, fuck these sluts, we gotta kill them, and referred them, they referred to the Cathars as weed. Like, seriously. They insisted that burning the weeds was necessary. And just for reference, University of Paris were also the same motherfuckers who murdered Joan of Arc. Like, these are some evil dudes. Uh, this process of uh, uh, destroying the Cathars would be known as the War Against the Cathars or the Albigensian Crusade. I should add, this kind of violence was not limited to just uh, the French region, as the need to genocide uh, a whole lot of people was imposed by Pope Innocent II. So he spread this genocide all throughout Europe. So here is a creepy passage from the book. Innocent III and the council were reminding their audience that the wheat had grown with the cockles, and the time of the harvest was upon them. Time was short. The first batch of weeds was burned in Constantinople, and then in Bezier. The next and final city, ready for the harvest, ready for the fire, was supposed to be Jerusalem. And then we open with the next chapter of a, On a Book Burning, and anti-Semitism in France. Look, nothing could prepare me for all the anti-Semitic violence that I've read um, when, it, when researching the Middle Ages. Like, nothing could prepare me for that. And while this information is accessible, at least most of it is to the public, it's not common knowledge, and it absolutely should be. To understand the events that happened in the 20th century, we have to look at where it all began. 
There were countless slaughters, banishments, forced conversions, and laws against Judaism in Europe. Just the Jews of Europe were faced with so much violence, and it was just like a millennia of violence predated the Holocaust. What American children are not taught in school is all of this, and that's a huge mistake. But I also think it's an intentional decision why they don't teach this. The Holocaust did not just happen. This type of violence has been around for a long time, and we need to call it out. We always need to call it out. We open in 13th century Paris, and Louis IX is large and in charge. And I don't know a lot about this guy, and I don't really want to, uh, but you should know that this motherfucker is a saint. Why he's a saint, I have no idea. Um, I know he was very close with his mother, who was also super abusive. At the age of 12, she's recorded as telling him that she would rather him be dead at her feet than be a sinner. So they're both fantastic people. The authors go on to describe Louis' special interest in the church and his desire to centralize his own power. With the weeding out of the Cathars, Louis set his sights on the Jews of Paris. He felt that the Jews needed to be reminded of their subservience to Christians and that they should not be allowed to distribute the Talmud. The Talmud is the central text of rabbinic Judaism and the primary source of religious law and Jewish theology. Not only were they forbidden from distributing it, uh, church officials with Louis' support gathered the books and burned them. Rabbi Mir of Rothenburg, who himself witnessed the book burning, in 1241 laments that Moses shattered the tablets and another one then repeated his folly. Burning the law in flames, I witnessed how they gathered plunder from you into the center of a public square and burned the spoils of God on high. Rabbi Mir, in anguish, related that the fire that burned so high, so bright, in the city of lights, paradoxically, leaves me and you in darkness. Louis IX went on to do a whole lot more sketchy things, but his big mission in life was to make the church and monarchy true amigos. Uh, but enough about this hoe, because I'm kind of sick of him. So the next chapter introduces us to a menace whom something like uh, 40% of the world can claim as an ancestor, and that menace is Genghis Khan. I went to a wedding back in October, and during that dinner, like during the wedding dinner, uh, the table I was seated at, uh, one of the guests mentioned uh, taking a 23andMe DNA test, and part of her ancestry was in the Mongolian region. Now, as far as she was concerned, her family was from, or had come from a particular eastern part of China, and that was that. But, uh, you know, once she saw that there was some something originate originally in the Mongolian area, she was like, oh, well, hello, grandpa. So Genghis had multiple wives and multiple rape victims. So he indeed got around and he was very fertile, like fertile as fuck. The authors connect the West to the East by describing Franciscan friars who traveled from the court of Louis IX to convert the Mongols to Christianity. The friars were freaks and had traveled from France to the Eastern Steep to meet with the Mongols who were shocked that they traveled and arrived in snow with like no shoes at all. To paint a clearer picture, the Eastern Steep describes um, a belt of grasslands extending from Hungary uh, to Central Asia. 
A Hungarian servant of the Khan said that these friars took vows of poverty and that this was a part of their religious practice. The Khan offered them rice wine, shoes, and entertained their stories about the French court. The friars were not successful in their conversion, but they left with their toes intact. This is where the inclusion of stories of the Middle Ages is executed well. It informs the reader just how aware different communities were of one another, despite not having the advances of technology uh, that connect us today. I think so often we have this image of secluded regions with a minimal interaction and like a minimal understanding of places and people outside of themselves. That just isn't true. And the Mongol Empire was large and powerful enough to be well known and viewed by European monarchs as either a possible threat or a possible ally. Back to our fertile menace. Genghis Khan was born as Temujin in 1162. He didn't adopt the term Genghis Khan until uh, he was like ruling over an empire. His rise to rule a massive trans-regional empire was absolutely not expected and has been one of the most unlikely events in world history. His father was a tribal chief who was murdered when Temujin was nine years old, and this caused his family to live isolated. At 17, he was captured and enslaved, but escaped to begin um, or and began to build his reputation as a military leader. Typically, one does not go from enslaved to being large and in charge, but here we are. Through a long and complex series of political and military moves, he managed to unite the peoples of the north of the Jin Dynasty of China to become what we now know as the Mongol Confederation. Now, there's some really fascinating stuff in this chapter, but also it's a whole slew of military talk. And y'all know war slash battles are just not my jam, but it's some really fascinating stuff. Like it is kind of hard for me to follow because my brain's not really wired to be drawn to wars and battles. But if that is your jam, you want to learn more about Genghis Khan, this chapter is a whole lot of fun. It's a really great chapter and like a good point to start if you would like to, if you don't really know a lot about Genghis Khan, but you kind of just want a good starting point to just see how much of a, an effect the Mongol Empire had on the medieval world. And I'm really glad that they included um, the story of Genghis Khan into this book. Now it's time for the plague. As a reminder, this book began its conception in 2020 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in case you were wondering, yes, the pandemic is still very much happening, despite the many, many, many folks who want to assure you that it isn't, and how we are proceeding as a society as if it's okay to think that way. Well, it's not. None of it's fine. Uh, with that said, the writers paint a clear, frightening image of the Black Plague while also alluding to the world we know today. It's both unsettling and quite sad. We start in the city of Siena through the words of citizen and shoemaker Agnolo de Tura. The Black Death began in May 1348. It came on suddenly. No church bells were rung to mourn those who were lost, and the city began building massive graves. Agnolo estimated 80,000 died in Siena within a few months. The streets were littered with valuables, and homes were empty. When the pestilence began to abate, Agnolo concluded, 
Now no one knows how to put their life back in order. Agnolo had buried five of his sons with his own hands, and he lamented that no one even grieved anymore because death was everywhere. An Egyptian man from the 15th century by the name of Ibn Ali al-Makizi had said so many died in Cairo that the city had become an abandoned desert. While medieval people lacked the knowledge to know just how the plague was being passed, they did suspect that it was some sort of invisible pathogen. The idea of air being bad or toxic was popular amongst the medieval world. And honestly, it's not a bad guess. Uh, Plenty of diseases are airborne, like COVID-19. Though, folks believe that COVID is fake or over, so... Who are the real dummies? Like, why do we keep saying inaccurate things like medieval people were dumb when we have all the information available to us now and people are like, uh, actually, I'm going to choose not to believe that. Thanks. Much like today, the plague garnered a lot of scapegoating and prejudice. Medical faculty at Asshole University, aka the University of Paris, believe that God punished the sinful and that sin manifested outwardly in physical illness. People still believe in this shit. Like, if somebody has a physical abnormality, they're like, oh my god, he was touched by Satan. Let's put our Jesus hands on him and heal him. Like, shit doesn't change. Anyway, back to uh, Paris. Uh, So, God could remove illnesses from the land if everyone had acted in a righteous manner. So they stated, People started to take out their frustrations on non-Christian communities with uh, Jewish people suffering the most offensive of violences. There is a slaughter mentioned in the book from a Catalan town in 1348 where a mass slaughter took place. In 2007, the mass Jewish grave was excavated to reveal what kind of injuries the Jews suffered and found children as young as three had been murdered. The authors included a quote that really resonates with our current time. When leaders either cannot halt a crisis or choose not to do so, or at times they intensify that crisis, the most vulnerable are too often left behind or slaughtered. In the middle of the 14th century, elites too often chose conspiracy theories and scapegoating, which cost thousands their lives. Ah, so nice that we've evolved so much from the Middle Age. Uh, wait, no, we haven't. There were many theories post-plague that children were born with less teeth than before. This, I think, was used uh, to state how the plague impacted human physiology and signified them entering a new era. The human change was not true, at least not in the way they proposed it to be, but I do believe the end of the plague was, in a way, the end of the Middle Ages. There is some debate on on when the Middle Ages officially ended. Some historians argue that the plague is when the Middle Ages came to a close, while others push the date back to the time of Joan of Arc, amidst the Hundred Years' War, or the Cousins' War in England, uh, that made way for the Tudor, the Tudor dynasty. I have to agree with the historians who believe uh, the Middle Ages ended with the plague. 
For one, the plague devastated not just Europe, but the entire medieval world, whereas the Hundred Years' War and the Cousins' War mostly just affected those countries and neighboring regions. Uh, tying the end of an era to just those moments, it doesn't feel inclusive or accurate. The chapter before the epilogue concludes a medieval history with the telling of Dante's Inferno, which I feel is fitting as the Inferno concludes through chaos and factionalism, sinners and torture, Dante comes to a vision of light and unity in both this world and the next. The authors never shy away from telling the violence of this era, nor do they excuse it. One of my biggest pet peeves when discussing the uh, history with someone is when people claim we cannot judge a person in the past who has committed atrocious harm simply because they did not know any better or it was a different time. This is an incredibly harmful and deeply damaging approach to take when looking to the past. It dumbs down the people of that era and it minimizes the harm, harm that was felt throughout generations and evident in the land. We cannot shy away nor excuse acts of violence. As Mark Twain stated, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. With that said, I appreciate the authors refusing to take to make excuses for what happened and the effects it had. The epilogue brings us to 16th century Spain, where there is a debate happening on whether American indigenous people are in fact people. It discusses how the Renaissance, which I sort of touched on earlier, was always viewed as a rebirth and emergence of art, progressive thought, and let's be clear, great white men doing great white things. But there's always this like constant comparison of Renaissance and the Middle Ages, like um, for example, like the Middle Ages is always being portrayed as like bad and dirty and stupid. And the Renaissance is like this period of enlightenment. And it's like, was it? Uh, I don't really know anymore. You know, like I used to love the Renaissance and I still kind of do. But if you wanted a direct answer from me on whether I feel like it was an enlightened period, uh, my answer is no, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> clearly not. Um, if there's like if there's debates going on about whether or not indigenous people are human, then no, it wasn't a period of enlightenment or progressive thought at all. Um, the authors bring up the Mona Lisa, for example. Uh, you know, modern scholars believe that she may have been the wife of a slave trader, and we view the piece, the Mona Lisa, as a masterpiece. And it's like so iconic and just universal and everybody knows the Mona Lisa. But really, she was a woman whose wealth came from mass human trafficking. So it's like we idolize these images from this time period. But in actuality, there was still a lot of very, there's still a lot of harm going on, you know, makes you think. I really appreciate the writers of this book because they continuously do one of my favorite things, and that's drag white supremacy some more and more and more and more. They refer to the 18th and 19th century historians and leaders who needed to find ways to justify their subjugation of people. So uh, those people, they looked to the 4th century Germanic people as pure white ancestors with a distinctive cultural legacy that needed to be valued. This started the concept of Western civilization, 
uniting uniting all of Europe together in this false bullshit all whitetopia narrative. By 1900, it was common for European leaders to try to shore up uh, with political narrative by referring back to the Middle Ages. Nazis before they became Nazis, like Kaiser Wilhelm II, visited Jerusalem dressed as a crusader. And this is around the time when everyone started to become obsessed with Angevin queer king Richard I, because he was like super horny for the Crusades and very anti-Semitic. Now, him being queer was left out of the narrative of him being a crusader because, of course, we didn't equate uh, queerness with being masculine at all. And a lot of people still don't. Uh, that's a different conversation entirely. So Richard I's queer identity was written out of history books. And, uh, you know, people thought that being a crusader and being anti-Semitic was much more appealing than him being queer. Thus, he became this, like, icon of, like, Christianity and, like, pure English heritage. Like, he's got a statue outside of fucking the English parliament. And I'm like, okay, but he was actually a crappy king. Um, And anyways, don't get me started on Richard I. You know what I mean. Uh, White white racists just got obsessed with the Crusades for very, very, very racist reasons. So I'm going to conclude by reading you a couple of passages from the book, and then uh, after that I will give my final thoughts. Yes, I still have more thoughts. The United States was, of course, part of this, leveraging a constructed Anglo-Saxon heritage, an imagined genteel class and race-based chivalry to justify its own white supremacy, both before and after the Civil War. It is not a coincidence that the members of the KKK called themselves knights, and that from the time of Thomas Jefferson, the term Anglo-Saxon was valorized as a racial category that ennobled white Americans, this was, as Matthew X. Vernon and others have shown, consistently contested by Black Americans, who rightly insisted the medieval world belonged to them too. We live today with the legacy of all this in our own dark age. White supremacists continue to reach back to medieval European history as a way to tell a story about whiteness, a sense of lost, but imagined, masculinity, and the need to shed blood. We see this across Europe when they cosplay as crusaders at anti-immigrant rallies and as they wield spray-painted shields with Dias Volt at rallies in Virginia, as they post screeds linking themselves to an imaginary new Knights Templar in Norway, as they invoke battles between Muslims and Christians to justify a massacre in New Zealand. They draw on the popular political and scholarly stories of the Dark Ages, but use new technologies to connect across oceans. They want to return to their imagined Middle Ages. Wherever you find white supremacists, you'll find medievalism, and you'll almost always find murder. Well, thank you so much for listening to my oversharing of the book, The Bright Ages. Look, I can't give quick book reviews. My brain simply is not wired that way. So 
the way my brain is wired is I'm just going to give you as much information as possible and you can do with it what you want to do. Basically, if I give a short review, it probably means I really didn't like the book at all. So consider this my standing ovation. I absolutely love this book, and I know what you're probably thinking. Well, you just described everything in the book to us, so should we even bother to read it? And the answer is... <laughs> Well, the answer is yes, you should read it. Um, but also, trust me, there was a lot of information I left out of um, left out when talking about this book, and I'll tell you why. So uh, there are two chapters in the book that deal with the Crusades, and um, that are some pretty fascinating things. And I could have just easily gone on for an hour to two hours on those chapters. And there's another chapter that is on Muslim Spain when it was known as uh, Al-Andalus. And I think Muslim Spain is really, really cool. Um, so just those three chapters, I know I could have just gone off <laughs> on it. So I purposely like avoided those. And you know, there's a whole lot more information in the book, too. The book includes so many stories of people from different classes and backgrounds and people of color and women, um, you know, so just a lot of a lot of people in the Middle Ages that we just wouldn't have heard of heard from otherwise because they're not a great white man. So uh, to answer your question, I actually did not tell you I, I left out quite a bit. So, yeah, you should check out this book. Um Things I would have liked to have seen mentioned uh, in this book were attitudes towards queer identity and some discussion on Ireland. Uh, so there is a kind of passing mention of Ireland in this book, uh, but I would have liked to learn more about the shaping and occupation of the island, uh, as I don't know quite a lot about early medieval Ireland, and I would love to know more. Uh, and of course, being queer, I want more queer medieval content always. Uh, we sort of got that with the story of the androgynous deer in the fable, but I always want more. It would have been nice to kind of see that in this story. I don't view it as a negative that we don't have that, but I think it would have been a nice voice to include. And uh, other thoughts. Uh, so I read the book. I, I bought the book um, and I got, and I also checked out the audiobook from my local library. Not a huge fan of the narration of the audiobook, and I really love audiobooks, and I feel like they make my ADHD very happy because I can move about and absorb a story at the same time, so it's like, woo, it, it does wonders for my brain. So I really appreciate a good narrator, and the audiobook definitely, definitely lacked a good narrator. Like, the dude was articulate and he was easy to follow, but very robotic. Like, imagine a male Alexa bot talking about white supremacy. Like, white supremacy is bad. Don't do it. Um, and it was just really boring. Um, I would have really liked it if both the writers read from the book. Like, if they took turns reading a chapter, I think it would have been really, I think it would have been cool because it would have been, like, sitting in one of their classes, which I absolutely would have loved. So, Sucks that they didn't do that. I think they should have, but whatever. Do I recommend this book? Yes, of course. If you are new to the Middle Ages and would like to know more, 
this would be a wonderful book to add to your reading list. If you know the Middle Ages well and are always eager to know more, this book will give you an intimate connection with the past and add more to your already intricate view of that moment in time. So, yes and yes. That concludes this episode of Finding History. Stay tuned for my last two episodes, which will be announced via my Instagram page at Finding History Podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening, and until then, stay safe and stay medieval. Bye-bye.